Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. By way of illustration this morning, um, there's a passage in Numbers 25. And it records the story of, of Moses and Aaron and Aaron's grandson, Phineas. See, Phineas was the son of Eliezer, the priest. He was the grandson of Aaron. He likely served in the tabernacle along with his relatives. It was his uncles, Nadab and Abihu, that were consumed by fire from the Lord's presence in Leviticus chapter 10. And in Numbers 25, Israel has a specific problem. See, people are dying by the thousands. In fact, Numbers 25 tells us that by the time everything is said and done, that 24,000 Israelites had died. Now imagine just the reality of this, carrying your brothers and your sisters, your father or your mother, your friend or your neighbor out into the desert to bury them. Specifically, Israel knew the cause of their problem, that God had revealed it to them. The cause of their problem was idolatry. See, it would seem that the Israelite men had started sleeping with the Moabite women of the area. And if you know your history, the Moabites were this kind of nation with this confused sexual history. They were started from the son of, of uh, Le- or not Levi, excuse me, the son of... Abraham's nephew. It's in my notes somewhere. Lot and his daughter. Somebody just passed the trivia test. Thank you. Uh, You did a great job. Lot and his daughter start this nation, Moabites, and they are just entrenched in this sexual confusion. But these Moabite women got the sons of Israel not just to sleep with them, but also to worship their God, specifically the, the god Baal which would become a major stumbling block for these Israelite people. See, what's introduced here in Numbers 25 would eventually push the train off the track. Israel would never recover from their love affair with Baal, starting with Solomon, extending through Ahab, and continuing through their exile. The kings of Israel would constantly battle idolatry. What we see this morning when we come into Exodus 23 is that God has just told Moses the laws that will guide Israel's existence, laws about slavery and murder and repayment for the lost property of other things, uh, amongst other things. But the Lord chooses to end this section with a promise and a warning. The promise is that he will bring them into this glorious thing called the promised land. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, this land was promised to Abraham. God invites Abraham to kind of walk this land and kind of scope it out and see how wide and the breadth of it all. But this promise comes with the warning. This warning is clear to stay away from idols. See, whether you realize it or not, idolatry is still deadly today. We've talked about this before. Idolatry in the Bible is filled with these little statues that you would put in your house and you would bow down to them and you would make sacrifices to them. You would do these things of worship. But idolatry today is different. 
The sacrifices we make to our idols are sacrifices of time and energy and money. They vie for our affections over and above what Jesus has called us to. See, you may not know it, but the idols of our heart, they steal our true life. They take away our joy and they replace it with anger and hostility. They take away our love and they replace it with lust and uncontrollable desire. They take away peace and they replace it with worry and anxiety. See, our idols always promise more than they deliver, don't they? And as we read this warning in Exodus chapter 23 against these particular idols in the ancient Near East, we might kind of fast forward a little bit this morning and start to apply it to our own hearts and say, what are the gods that my heart bows down to? What are the things that suck away my joy, that suck away my peace, my love, that siphon off the beautiful life that God has given us in Christ? Here's our big idea. See, God promises his deliverance so that when we believe it, we'll obey what he says. God promises our deliverance. He shows us his grace so that when we believe in that grace, we're equipped to do what he says. I want to see this in two different phases in our outline. The portion that Caleb just read this morning, that God guards our journey so that we must obey in verses 20 through 22. And then God gives victory so that we must be faithful in verses 23 through 33. I'm going to warn you, some of the things that we're about to tackle are a little bit heady at times. So I'm just going to call you to put on your seatbelts here. Hang with me. If you don't understand something, I promise I'm going to be at the door at the end of this so you can ask me there. And uh, we'll talk through it, right? Some of these things in the law that we find, sometimes they confuse us, they disorient us, because we're so used to the Old or the New Testament way of thinking that the Old Testament way of thinking, the Old Covenant, as it were, causes us to kind of trip over that. And there's a few statements in here that I think might be a little bit heady for us, and we want to just dive into those things head first. But first, God guards our journey so that we must obey. Look at verses 20 through 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." See, the first thing we see is that God promises delivery and deliverance. He promises first delivery in verse 20. Look at what he says in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. What is this angel? Who is this angel that we're talking about? Israel already has some experiences with angels in the book of Exodus. And if you remember, we were kind of go back to Exodus 13 and 14. Uh, Exodus 13 shows us the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And then just the next chapter, we see this description, 14, 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. So in one passage, it's described as an angel, and the other passage is described as the presence of the Lord. So what we have here is likely a theophany. Notice even in our text the way it's described that this angel is able to, but unwilling to, pardon transgressions. 
that his name is in him, that the deity of God is kind of bound up in this angelic presence. So the upshot of all of this is that this is likely a pre-incarnate view of Christ, a theophany, as some of us may say. Regardless, this Jesus, this is Jesus that we're speaking of. But notice what he will do. Jesus will lead Israel to the promised land. Verse 20 says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God has prepared this place, this land of Canaan. He promised it to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13 and Genesis 15 and 17. He promised that he would make them a great nation. And now he's going to usher them into this promised land through the presence of Jesus Christ, who's going to lead them along the way. Verse 22 says that God promises not to deliver them, but deliverance from their enemies. Be careful if you obey his voice and do all that I say, verse 22, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. See, remember back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and he would curse those who cursed Abraham. This is kind of a recommitment to that. When they obey, God will be adversarial to their adversaries. God will be an enemy to their enemies. He will be the big brother, right, that guards the younger brother. I remember being a kid and I had this kid in my neighborhood who had a, a, a brother who was a doctor, like 25 years old. And he used to threaten that his doctor brother was going to come beat me up. And I said, is he going to charge me for healing then? Like what's going to happen? Jesus is going to go along. He's going to be the adversarial presence for these Israelites. See, God says that this is contingent upon Israel's obedience, that they must carefully obey his voice. Now look at these responsibilities. They have to obey Christ's voice. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. If you notice, just notice how these verses are laid out in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 starts with a call to obey. Verse 22a uh, states uh, another call to obey. And smashed in between these two things, like a sandwich, is this middle statement in verse 21, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. It's like a sandwich, right? You got the, the promise or the call to obey and the call to obey and the meat is this statement in verse 21, he will not pardon your transgression. My name is in him. This is shocking to us when we realize that this is Jesus looking at his people saying, I'm not going to pardon your transgressions. We'll unpack this more fully later. Let's just wrestle with this right now a little bit. Say, Jesus isn't just all grace. Jesus has a side of judgment. The book of Revelation tells us he's going to come back with a sword in his mouth. He's going to strike down the nations with the words that come out of his mouth. Jesus isn't just all love and kindness. There's a part of him that is committed to the holiness and righteousness of God. Reminded of that in this passage, that even in his dealings with his people, he's not content to just bring mercy all of the time. It particularly has to do with the nature of this covenant that he's establishing, and we'll talk about that later. But for right now, we just stand in awe of the perplexity, the, the immenseness of Christ. 
See, for now, whatever this is, God is serious about it. You know, in Numbers 25, Moses used an interesting term to describe Israel's adultery or idolatry, excuse me, kind of showed my hand there. He uses the term whoring, adultery. Moses saw idolatry as unfaithfulness, and he uses this metaphor of an unfaithful wife to describe our pursuit of our idols. This morning, our listening shows our fidelity to our God. Now, just imagine this. I know this is really hard for some of us to imagine. Imagine a spouse who never listens to a thing you say. Jody's snickering right now. If the TV's on, I don't listen, right? But beyond that, it's not simply that they were distracted. It's that the spouse ignored whatever you told them. You told them, hey, I took $50 out of the checking account. Or, hey, you don't wash the dishes that way. The dishwasher doesn't work when you do that. Hey, well, you, you've got to ride the bike like this or whatever else. See, every time you said something to them, they just ignored it and went their own way. What kind of thing would you start to think about the nature of your relationship if every word you said was ignored or forgotten? See, listening implies learning. Proverbs tell us that fools don't listen. They choose to continue in their foolishness. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. See, God's people consistently throughout the Bible hear his voice. In fact, we see this multiple places in Jesus's ministry. When he finishes a, a parable or a teaching, he says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says that again in the book, uh, to the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says, let him hear. He said it in, in John chapter 10, and speaking of the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice. See, the truth is that God's people hear his voice. They respond to his commands. They respond after they've experienced grace, experienced mercy. We respond to the commands of God by living in submission to this authoritative Christ. And when we fail to follow his commands, which, by the way, we all feel that sting. When we fail to follow his commands, we follow through in patterns of confession and repentance. Don't forget, Christian, that confession is a way to keep the commandments too. But I want to look at the remainder of this passage, the promise that God brings to Israel and unpack a little bit more of what God brings. The second point we have in verses 23 through 33 is that God gives victory so that we must be faithful. This kind of splits into two different sections. In verses 23 through 25, we find some more promise, 23 through 26, promise and responsibility. And then there's another nationally stated promise and responsibility in verses 27 through 33. So I want to just dive into this first promise that God's promise is to drive out the enemies. Look at verses 23 through 26. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." 
You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take your sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. See, when God drives out the nations, they are not to worship these other gods. It's a summary of verses 23 through 26. As they serve, they're going to experience these personal blessings described in verses 25 and 26. He'll bless their bread and their water. We just saw a season where the Israelites are passing through uh, out of the land of Egypt, and they're without water. They're without bread, and God provides miraculously water from a rock and bread from heaven. God is committing to continuing this. Verse 25 says that they will have no sickness. I will take sickness away from among you. They won't miscarry. In verse 26, it'll give them a long life. In verse 26, I will fulfill the number of your days. Notice the responsibility that's stated in verse 24. They shall not serve other gods. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. Notice the progression, right? You're not just to bow down to them. You're not to serve them. And not only are you not to serve them, you're not supposed to do as they do. In fact, verse 24 says that they're going to utterly overthrow them and break down their pillars in pieces. And one of the things, if we were to fast forward to the books of First and Second Kings, time and time again, the kings of Israel, and excuse me, they fail to break down what is called the high places. See, what you would do if you were an idolater in the land of Israel, you wouldn't set up an idolatrous altar in the middle of Jerusalem. You'd go up into the high places, and you'd set up an altar to worship there where nobody would see you. You could do your things out there. And so uh, Israel would set up these idolatrous centers of worship up in the mountains, up in the high places, so that they could make sacrifices to other gods. And these kings of Israel consistently fail to tear down these altars. They worship at them themselves. Verses 27 through 33 turn our eyes nationally for Israel, right? Look at verse 27. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What's happening here? See, God starts off that he's going to drive out the inhabitants bit by bit. First, notice that God is going to send his terror. Throughout this passage, God's telling us he's going to send something before them, but it's the angel of the Lord. Here, it's his terror. I still think we're talking about a pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus will drive out the enemies of the land in front of them. And he does so by hornets, murder hornets, right? From COVID, whatever that was. 
Notice the, the size of the land. If you were to kind of put it on a map, the size of this land is huge. Uh, in fact, someone speculated that uh, modern-day Israel only covers about 5% of the land that's described in this passage. So what happens then is God is saying, I'm going to give it to you bit by bit because you're not, you're not big enough. You don't have enough people to fill this land. You need to take it bit by bit so that the beasts don't overrun it, so that it doesn't become overgrown. He tells them it's because of wild beasts and the possibility of desolation. In contrast to the former section, this has a a bit more of a national flavor. These promises are made to the nation, and so the responsibility should be seen nationally too. That's what we see in verses 32 through 33, right? Israel's responsibility was not to make a covenant or to go habitate with these people. First, he starts off with this uh, prohibition against covenants with former people. In verse 32, look what he says. It says, you shall make no covenant with them. That's with the other nations, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the somethingites, whatever they are. You should not make any covenant with them or with their God. Israel was not to make alliances with any other nation or any other deity. They were meant to trust in God's provision and God's goodness alone. Now, again, we see this as a tripping point for the future of Israel. Israel in their weakness is always trying to make uh, kind of uh, bonds and covenants with other nations so that they can cover over their weakness. Secondly, in verse 33, that Israel wasn't to share their land that they were to drive out the nations from before them. We see this in the books of Joshua, this constant call to drive out the nations, to drive out the peoples that existed in the land, and Israel never fully does so. See here, in this beginning of this uh, covenant or uh, this establishment, what God's doing, he has this certain list of things that he's going to do and a certain list of things that Israel is going to do. And we can already see the seeds planted for the future of these ways that Israel is going to disobey their God. They're going to worship false gods. They're not going to drive out the people from the land. They're going to be unfaithful in these particularities of this covenant. See, Numbers 25 brings us back to this particular situation, right? They, they, people were dying, 24,000 people are dying, and, and God has highlighted it's because of the specific nature of their idolatry. And it describes in Numbers chapter 25 that the people of Israel are gathered around the tent of meeting, that Aaron and Moses and Phinehas are there. And so Phineas has his face down in the dirt, crying out to God, God, stop this plague, stop this death, call your people back to righteousness and holiness. And as these people gather at the tent of meeting, Phineas is face down in the dirt and he hears laughter off in the distance. He raises his head and he looks over his shoulder to see a young Moabite woman next to an Israelite man headed to the tents. Israel, Phineas, gets up to his feet. He follows this couple. He picks up his pace as he follows this couple past past two tents. He picks up the spear from in front of someone else. And as they push themselves into a tent, he opens the door and he finds them in a lover's embrace and he takes the spear and drives it through both of them. 
This is the face of our idolatry, right? Just give me a, a little bit of allowance, this extravagance with this story. What if we were to flip over that Israelite and say, who is this person? Who is this individual who has brought this desecration to God's people? Who is this person who has violated the holiness and righteousness of God? Who is this person? What if we flipped it over and looked at the face of that individual? Who would it be? It would be you and me. We're the idolaters that have violated God's presence. We are the ones who have attached ourselves to foreign gods, to other lovers. We're the ones who have pursued something other than what he's called us to. We're the ones that deserve the spear through our chests. Who is it who brings the worship of idols into God's camp? Who is it who unites himself to a harlot? Who is it who worships something so far less than the God of the universe? It's you and it's me. We are the idolaters in that story. See, the truth is this morning that a true affection for Jesus cannot coexist with our own idolatry. Just as Jesus turned over temple or tables in the temple, he will overturn the idols in our hearts. One by one, bit by bit, he will conquer that territory. He will not coexist with our idolatries. See, the promise here in Exodus chapter 23 is that Jesus will go before Israel, but he won't pardon their iniquity. He will bring them safely into the promised land, but if they mess up, they will be evicted. This is firmly in the realm of the Old Covenant. Saying, oh, great, Old Covenant, what the heck is that? The term Old Covenant refers to this very agreement between Israel and God. It was one in which both sides had responsibilities. Israel had obligations to obey God, And based upon their obedience, God blessed the nation of Israel. Let me give you an example of another old covenant promise from Deuteronomy chapter 30. I don't even know what that is. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. It's on the screen behind me. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commend you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. You hear that? Rights and responsibilities. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. Do you hear that? Rights, responsibilities. You worship, you follow, you keep your heart, you stay away from idols. I'll give you the fullness of the land. I'll keep you from disease. And we have to recognize that this was massively different than any covenant that God had made thus far. When God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, you remember this story. Abraham splits the animals in half, and he and God are to pass through these to say, hey, if I break this covenant, so be unto me that I would become like these dead animals. 
What happens? Abraham falls asleep by the tree and the presence of God passes between these animal halves. Abraham has no conditionality. Abraham has no responsibility. God is just going to bless him. Noah, Genesis chapter nine, right? God just struck the earth with water. He's just judged it. God makes a promise. He puts the bow in the clouds and he says, I never again am I going to destroy the earth like this. Noah doesn't have any responsibilities. Here, Moses and Israel have conditions. There's fine print to this contract that they have to pay attention to. See, now our dealing with God in the new covenant is also unconditional. Think about when Jesus ushers in this new covenant in Matthew chapter 26. He's about to go to the cross and he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room. He's taking this first communion and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of, of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. See, by no doing of our own, God forgives our sins. By no doing of our own, God brings us into his kingdom. By no doing of our own, God includes us in the righteousness of Christ. By no doing of our own, God wipes away our sinfulness. By no doing of our own, God gives us the fullness and blessing of his grace. By no doing of our own, God gives us hope and future in Christ. You are not in an old covenant. You are in a new covenant filled with grace and mercy. Jesus pardons our transgressions. You don't need to be afraid of this passage because this passage leads us to the fullness of that new covenant. Amen. So let's summarize exactly what's happening in our passage because I think this is a shadow of the future fulfillment of what's going to happen to us in Christ. See, Jesus is going to go before Israel, like verse 20 says. Jesus is going to defeat Israel's enemies, like verse 23 says. Jesus is going to give Israel a land he prepares for them. But now Jesus has gone before all of his people. Jesus went before us in his death, and by his death, he has defeated our enemies, like Colossians 2 describes. Jesus has prepared a place for us, like John 14 describes. The promise which garners our obedience is his salvation. By the mercies of God, we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in Romans chapter 6. Because we were bought with a price, we glorify God with our bodies in 1 Corinthians 6. See, the fuel of God's abundant salvation is sufficient to drive the engine of our obedience to him. Christian, if you find yourself languishing in patterns of disobedience, the place to start is rediscovering God's grace to you. Just to be clear, your self-reliance 
will not be sufficient for you to be obedient. Your wisdom will not be enough. Your willpower will not pull you through. Your righteousness will falter. When we simply tell ourselves, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, all of these things are destined to perish with use, according to Paul. A few years ago, um, when I was at my last church, the pastor preached, I think it was five weeks on two verses. And those were some really long sermons, I got to tell you, right? But the passage still sticks with me. And maybe that tells you that that sermon series was more effective. But Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Set your eyes on the things above, not on the things of the earth. How do we do that? How do we set our eyes on the things above, not on the things of the earth? How do we say no to sinfulness and selfishness? How do we engage? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. If we were to look at those verses this morning, we would find past, present, future grace in Christ. Have you ever noticed this about the Bible? That God's truths drive his commands. God's indicatives, to get English majors involved here, his indicatives drive his imperatives. The truths that he shows us in his word are meant to be a a fuel for our obedience to his commandments. God gives the command. He anticipates that his grace in Christ is the means of fulfilling it. If that's the case, I want to just... Pull back the veil for a second and say, our idols reveal our true allegiances. The things with which we become so easily entangled can reveal the state of our faith. Just be transparent this morning. Some of my idols are comfort. Like the good life in the back of my mind, if I were to be honest with you, is like a a thing of wings, a Diet Coke, which is, I don't know why I like Diet Coke, I do, and a a Browns game where they're actually winning. I know, it's hard to imagine, right? The idols of our hearts are comfort, power, prestige, respect, respect. The idols of our heart are are things that are, they drive us to things like greed, sex, outside of God's will. The truth is, beneath those idols are another set of motivating factors that drive us to those behaviors. And all of these things are an abandonment of the goodness of God. You know, when I desire comfort, there's particular promises or statements from God that stand direct in direct contrast to that. In this world, you will have trouble, right? Romans 13, verse 11, where, where Paul says, hey, salvation is nearer to you now. It's not the time to be asleep. Now is the time for you to wake from sleep. Now's the time for you to wake up 
It's not time to rest. It's time to wake up. It's time to be alive in Christ. You got 70 years. Press, push. Not time to be comforted. It's time for you to press and push for the sake of the kingdom. See, Time and time again, the trade-off is clear. Listen to this passage from, from Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah is confronting the people of God. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cistern for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water, right? They, they traded in this massive fountain of God for a broken water fountain that doesn't work. They've traded in God's goodness and abundance for something shallow and broken. See, our preference for other gods only reveals a problem of faith in God's promises. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Satan says to Eve, did God really say? Genuine faith in God's goodness is the antidote to our idolatrous desires. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with that particular sin that's just nagging, if it's been a year, or five years, or 20 years, just say the start to that is to find hope in the gospel in Christ, to review this new covenant that God has invited you into, to find rich, abundant hope in Christ. Friends, that's what we have. That's how God overcomes our sinful nature. Of course, God sets the table for us, doesn't he? He raises us to new life in Christ. He detaches us from that sinful nature that determined what we did. He fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we're empowered to do the right things. He gives us his people that we can be encouraged. He plants his word in front of us so that we can hear from him. But at the heart, we have to say no to our idols and yes to the grace that God has given us in Christ. I want to pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would allow us to be people who fight against these idols that vie for our affection and for our attention. Help us to be those who cling to the promises of your new testament or your new covenant. That you have forgiven our sin, that you have included us in your kingdom. Lord, allow us to be holy as you are holy. As your spirit takes greater and greater control of our hearts and lives. As your word bears more and more meaning for what we do, how we speak, what we love. Lord, honor your name in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.